You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. How about some more digital noise? That's always a good day for me. Yeah, exactly. Aaron, man, my faithful uh, partner who I can't believe lets me hand him off as many <laughs> mixed quality films as I do and reliably comes back to go, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. Well, that's because I, I, I get to, for the most part, expose other people to them as well. My wife and now my au pair, which means that I get to sit there and watch horrible, violent, psychotic, sometimes funny, sometimes good, usually psychosexual-filled movies with totally innocent women who just... Do not get it. And it's fun for me. That sounds very disturbing, actually. <laughs> I'm nice and evil that way. So we're going to start off with a new Arrow release from a series that, I'll admit, I- I'm very much in defense of Arrow and the way they do things, and I'll defend the way that they put this together. This uh, is called The American Horror Project. This is uh. Volume 2. I did not see Volume 1, but this is put together by a uh, a musician author named Stephen Thrower, who's interesting because he's like... He's worked with the band Coil in the 80s. Um, he's got a lot of really interesting band stuff that he's done in the terms of very depressing industrial stuff. And he's been known for a writer who's ha- who has really tackled some, I don't know, problematic's the right word, like very dark and niche horror stuff. Like he did a book called Beyond Terror, the films of Lucio Fulci, The Eyeball Compendium, Nightmare USA, The Untold Story of the Exploitation Independence, and a two-volume Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of of Jesus Franco, which, by the way, I can't get behind Franco. Just not my thing. I've tried. Arrow put out all of them recently, and I was like, I can't do it, dude. Franco is boring as shit. I'm sorry. I have to admit, these next few movies are going to be interesting for me. I didn't really like any of them. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> but but I will say, like, from the viewpoint of... All right, so this is from the viewpoint of someone who's obsessed with horror. It's all he thinks about. And is always looking for a new hidden gem. And I get that. I'm that guy with Chinese cinema who's very yeah. forgiving of, like, stuff that you never saw before that, like... It's not that great, but like, hey, we never saw it before and it's got some cool moments in it. I get it. And I'm a big horror guy, but I'm not as big a horror guy as this guy is, clearly, because the three films he's picked for this set as like little horror gems, they're not. They're not gems. <laughs> they're easily very forgettable. Now, I will say that all of them are just odd enough to stand out from the pack of other low-budget, obscure horror movies that were coming out in the times they came out in. And, and here's the thing, uh, other thing, I was... After watching these three movies, which was th- one a day, three days in a row, good God, I hated you on that third day. <laughs> um, but I started Googling them because I was like, why? Just why these movies? And I found another review for this set that was commenting that all three of these movies 
star, I think, Academy Award winning actors. No, two of them did. I thought it was all three. No, two of them did. Okay. Not the third one. Well, then, no, that's even gone. They're just... Ugh. Yeah, I, I don't know. But we're going to start off with the Let's first go. one. Let's go. Uh, I'm ready. Dream No Evil, which I'm going to I'm gonna make you tell the plots of these. Oh, fuck you, Chris. <laughs> um, okay. Are you ready for the challenge? The American Horror Challenge. Actually, I can do this. Okay. Dream No Evil is the, is the least plotty plot of all three of them. Um, basically, it is about a girl slash woman who is dealing with psychosis, over the loss of her father, she's an orphan. We begin with her in an orphanage, having a terrible dream, and then being abused for being an orphan. Um, and as you it did. quickly fast forwards to her as an adult, she is dating the son of a preacher man, working for a preacher man in an exploitation church that drives around in a wagon. You know, like she basically jumps off of a 30 foot tall platform. Yeah, her, God. her deal is it's, like, yeah, he's a preacher. He's, he's a faith healer. He's like, Oh, and here's our attraction to get you to come is that she jumps off of a huge yeah. platform. And so in a, in a skimpy bathing suit, as we get into the movie, she, she's always searching for her father. That's always a part of what she's doing. Like the, when she comes out in her skimpy bathing suit, she actually is afraid that her father might see her, which, Okay. Um, She's all like, and then, I'm afraid my father might see me before, jumping off for a preacher, man. <laughs> and before very long, she ends up in a retirement home bordello, um, cr- not crematorium, but mortuary. Yeah, weirdest where, business ever. Where she <laughs> finds her father and... Who's bring, dead. Who's dead, brings him back to life, and then lives with him where he proceeds to be a super redneck toxic masculine asshole dad who starts murdering people. Yeah. Um, which I'm, I'm clear if that's just who he is or if there's some evil, this movie could have been interesting. The biggest problem with this movie is that it has a narrator who explicitly in no uncertain terms tells you Everything that is happening. So, like, when she walks into the mortuary bordello retirement home, the movie literally pauses to go, and at this point, what she is seeing is all imaginary. That is a fucking quote. And the moment that happened, I was like, I'm done. I mean, the moment there's a narrator stepping in to have to explain things for you, like, on that level, you go, out of nowhere, you're like... Um, you're a forgettable movie. Yeah. You and, could and, not do it on your own. And the last five minutes of the movie is a psychiatrist re-explaining the plot of the entire film, which yeah. we know because the narrator. Like, it, it, this movie almost pissed me off if I even cared because it could have actually been legitimately interesting. And the the actor who played the dead, the dad, Ed, back from the dead father. Edmund O'Brien. Yeah. Is legitimately trying his hardest to make this a good performance. Because he's the Academy Award, and, and he, award winning yeah, actor. He's the yeah. Academy Award. He is charismatic and interesting. He's only in the last half of the movie. The kills are, for the most part, lame. There's one death that's kind of fun with a scythe. There's there's an Ed Woodiness to this yeah. particular one that I kind of enjoyed. And like I, I really enjoyed the preacher because he's so outlandish. Like that was fun. Yeah. 
But that's it. But this kind of goes nowhere. It has no sense of momentum to it. All three of these films have no sense of momentum to them is the biggest problem. They just kind of trawl along to get to their points. I mean, the third one, I would say, has maybe a little more, but even then... I I don't even know the order. I'm kind of excited to see what order they pop up in, because I get them in separate discs, and they all had the same title. So with all three of these, I had no idea what I was watching until I put the disc in. I'm fair. No, I didn't either. I was like, okay, here we go. Let's go for the ride. Let's see what they have for us. The next one is Dark August, which... uh, The first film, I think, is like a 60s film, and this one is clearly All right. a, a 1976 film. Dark August, which I want to begin by saying this is the closest to a real movie in the set. Yes, I agree. Um, so, be- I mean, this is Thomas Tyron who had a uh, written a, based on a book uh, he wrote called The Other, which was a huge hit for him uh, and uh, later on Harvest Home. But it's not, this is not a major <laughs> success let me explain the I'm plot. sorry, to explain the plot. Come I'm sorry, on. I'll step back. <laughs> it's your show, Aaron. So, Dive so, off your high board. Before, <laughs> <laughs> so before the movie starts, um, the main character who is the best actor in the movie uh, is in an accident and, a- and accidentally, legitimately accidentally, and not even negligently accidentally, like just nobody's at fault kind of thing. Hits a girl and kills her. You yes. don't see it happen until later on in the movie, but that is the quintessential they thing. That they reference the he did something bad, yeah. and it's not till later. And so see. he is dealing with the guilt of that. It's a year later, and weird shit starts to happen. Uh, he starts to have momentary like fugues where he just is kind of gone for a moment and speaks in weird sounds and bad luck starts happening to the people around him like there's a a laughable but still kind of fun scene where his friend accidentally cuts his leg open with a handsaw <laughs> which is always fun <laughs> which oh it's so terribly done but uh we come to find out what's happened is somebody has cursed him with a demon and there's this shape that he keeps seeing the presence and yeah, hooded he, shape and he slowly goes from going look I, I'm dealing with shit to alright I'm fucked up to alright I'm actually being possessed uh, and at that point they like it's the standard ghost story they pull in a the local a, psychic the yeah. local psychic to do a seance um, what makes this movie a little bit different is there is a person who's kind of the driving force who is the one causing all this to happen, but really that doesn't matter because they're in like two scenes of the entire movie. Uh, and the problem this movie has is that its last act should have been the end of the first act. Yeah. Like you could cut yeah. out a third of this movie and just be like, all right, we have the seance at the end of the first act and then shit starts getting weird, but they don't do that. Uh, it just, just wants to drag and drag and drag throughout with, the film. You're like, the exception, oh my God, get to it. With the exception of one scene, which again, this is before we've actually found out what happened before the movie, where he goes up to an old man who this is his introduction, unless I missed it, and proceeds to attack him physically because he won't forgive him for killing his daughter. Yeah. It is which spoiler hilarious. Spoiler. 
the guy who set the yeah. person. <laughs> in fact, oh I mean, the, the Academy Award winner winner is Kim Hunter, who plays the psychic, who was so thrilled about being on this film, shockingly, uh, that she is uh, actually credited with some of the bonus features here. There's bonus features on all three of these, which were released separately as well. But, and, I mean, yeah, come on, this is just boring. This movie did a couple of things that were legitimately interesting in the last third. It just should have been in the second act. It's it's well shot. I'll give you that. I, I, I actually... Uh, I mean, did I did not as, dislike this movie. As opposed to the pr- previous one, which is shot like an Ed Wood film. Yeah. This is actually like, you're trying to show us like interesting cinematography and it's shot in like a town in Vermont that apparently this film was kind of famous because nothing else was shot in this town. <laughs> Stowe, Vermont. Which yeah. Was my wife's maiden name, which was really fun for me. <laughs> uh, fair, fair. All right. So, uh, the third one here, the child, which, So I mentioned in the now last episode, first half of tonight's recording, that I watched a movie for this cycle that had the worst sound I've ever heard in my entire life. And that's this? This is that movie. Okay. Oh my God, it's it's horrible. It's not great. (laughs) But I will say, at least this one has zombies. Yeah, okay. All right, what's the plot? All right, so... um, I can't believe you're so good at doing this that I can call (laughs) you to do it. You're like, shit. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So... We, we've seen this setup before. Uh, Nanny shows up in the dead of night to go. I, I think she was a nanny. We never actually really saw her being a nanny, but she was like a homemaker who's coming in, like in the King and I, to take care of the kids and help this rural farm household survive. And it's more like y'all, Brenner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,. And shit starts creepy right away. She wrecks her car for no good reason. She gets the do- the message of doom from the neighbor lady. Uh, and her first introduction to the patriarch of the family is basically him calling her a fucking idiot. It's <laughs> And all of this is, by the way, I have to mention this on the front end, they clearly recorded no sound on set and ADR'd everything. The entire film. And did yeah. a piss poor job laying it in. Because there is not one well sound mixed sound in this entire film. And it it's never not a thing watching this movie. Yeah. But we quickly start to learn that shit's a little weird. The, the mother died unexpectedly. And there was some, some weirdness. There are lots of tramps in the nearby cemetery, which, by the way, is not loose people. It is indeed homeless people, which <laughs> took me a little bit to figure out. <laughs> like, what are you saying? They're like they're all people of sexually like ambiguous I, nature. I, I thought like people just had a lot of sex in the local cemetery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it took no, me a I meant hobos, <laughs> which you can't say anymore either. So yeah. I don't know what to say. Um, homeless so, people, but so we quickly come to find out that. The little girl is kind of crazy, and she also randomly has zombie friends that she can sick on. Yeah, people, she has psychic power. If, if there is a story behind why that is, I missed it. It's a it's a bad and, seed version, except yeah. where the bad seed can control zombies. And she, basically, shit goes cray, and she starts sicking the zombies on everybody. Yeah, uh, as you do. The movie's boring. the The music is so. 
gothic and maudlin that it's hilarious. And <laughs> the first time I saw a kill in this movie, I legitimately was impressed. The gore was cool. It was. It had some nice gore moments. And then as the movie continued, they used the exact same gore effect of part of the face being ripped away and the exposed eye to where I realized that the gore wasn't great. It was just that this guy learned one effect really well and yeah. just did that and one thing really well. Yeah. Cause they do it like four times in the movie. I mean, I'm admittedly not the world's biggest fan of bad seed films. Like, of the whole, like, oh, evil kid movies. Yeah, and I'm this one f- doesn't handle this well at all. I agree. I I could care less. I don't enjoy evil, evil kid movies. They're it, just... It's, I, don't I mean, do it. I've seen one or two that I thought were pretty good. But even then, I never liked them as much as other people do. You know? Even the bad scene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's fine. I thought this was... For me, this was the most entertaining watch of the three in terms of, like, halfway watching it the way you do this type of film. Uh, At least there's, like, shit is happening. With Dark August, nothing happens through the bulk of the film. Dark August was my first, so I was still naive and young and ran (laughs) over the shot. This was the last one, and by the time I got here, I was just like, man, fuck you, movie. (laughs) There's... Definitely an art to picking obscure horror films. And I respect this guy for the stuff that he likes. There are people out there who want to see every last Ed Wood film, too. I I don't know why. Um, There's a market for that. I am not part of that target market. I love horror movies. I don't love... Picking out films just because they're slightly odd. Like, out of the path. Like, whenever I think of dredging up an old movie, especially a forgotten movie, there's there has to be something special about it. Something it does with passion. And all three of the... Like, I understand with uh, the... The lady who's dating the son of the preacher man, whichever title that was. Dream one. But that... I think the director has, was known for other movies and did some really good stuff, so I, I can see that. But the others, especially the child, I just don't understand why this movie is worth knowing outside of the idea that all cinema should be kept as a basic record of history and art. So, like, like outside of that yeah. idea. Agreed. I mean, I appreciate the fact that they're trying to pull back these films that otherwise would be all but lost. Yeah. And somebody is going to watch these and go, wow, I'm really glad I got to see that. Shit, I just, I, I don't know who. Yeah. I'm like, I'm more about like that whole, there's a lot of great films you should be re-releasing that I'm not sure why you're not, yeah. as opposed to these movies. I suspect part of it is that we can get the rights to them for nothing and then spend the money <laughs> on sure bonus they, features. they bought the creators a nice dinner. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, so next up is Mill Creek re-releasing Mothra, which feels very timely, of course, because Godzilla, King of the Monsters, of which course. I still haven't seen, has come out, which features Mothra in a prominent role. I'll talk to you about that after. It's... It's interesting. But Mothra is definitely one of the biggest, I don't mean in size, I mean like in popularity, kaiju characters of all time, who has always been like looked at as a good character. And I've never seen, I've watched all of the Godzillas. I've watched all of them. Thanks to Matt Frank. Fuck you. I love you, (laughs) Matt Frank. But at the same time, it's like, Jesus fucking Christ. Hey, 
Be careful. I own every Godzilla and Mothra movie. Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I'm just and like, Gamera. I, I watched all of them. I've watched all the Gamera's. I've never watched like, Moth- the original Mothra. Just realize you're talking to a guy who, and, and I don't do this often, I squeed recently when it was announced that uh, Mill Creek is buying uh, the rights to Ultraman and is going to be I saw that. Ultraman. I flippin' freaked the fuck out. I went, fuck, I'm going to have to watch <laughs> that shit, aren't I? God damn it. Maybe I could just give it to Matt Frank and like hand him off to review it. Give it, it. to me. Give it to me. <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, so, anyways, Mothra. Mothra. Mill Creek put out a really nice, beautiful looking steelbook edition of this film, which is cool because, I mean, in the past couple years, we've seen not steelbook, but really nice editions of all the Godzilla films that have been re released. Um, yeah, on the on the whole, the you know, the bulk. There are a couple that I'm. I'm still a little upset I don't have a good American copy of, but that's neither here nor there. They're, they're out there. Yeah. They're like, that whole original run exists in an American copy Blu-ray. Just saying. They did them all at once, and then they immediately lost the rights to them. Yeah. So, what are you going to do? But they sent them to me, so... <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, Aaron. <laughs> but this is from 1961, Mothra, which was a kaiju who is a giant moth, which seems questionable on paper. Well, it, it, dude, so I'm going to touch on the Matt Frankism, which is... Do it. I mean, you have to realize, Mothra is purposely like the antithesis of Godzilla. Yeah. You know, she... She dies frequently. She's weak and soft and cuddly. And it... And she's got a phoenix thing going on. Yeah. yeah. And she always comes back. It's Whereas Godzilla is this unkillable force of nature, Mothra is the very concept of rebirth. Yeah. You know, and she's always growing and evolving. And this was a really fucking weird kaiju film, all things considered. Yeah. Like, the whole setup of Mothra is goddamn well, odd. So I'm going to throw out there that... I think that this is the weakest Mothra showing there is. I think Mothra to Mothra films is the weakest one. Yeah. It's the only one I've seen other than ones where she appears in Godzilla films. No, she's all of her Godzilla appearances are good. And then there is a trilogy of movies that came out in the nineties called rebirth of Mothra, which are marketed very much at seven, eight year olds. But the monster stuff in them is really amazing. And if you have kids, they're great because they move quick and they're funny and the effects are good for the early nineties. <laughs> Not so praise. much today, but Faint praise. But like, you know, at the time they were good and like they are legitimately good children's films. Yeah. Mothra's this one, 1961 Mothra. Like, I enjoy as a kaiju fanatic, but I acknowledge that it has a lot of problems, and it has the same problems that a lot of the 60s-era kaiju movies do, which is they hadn't figured out pacing yet. Yeah. And this movie is very slow. So what's the plot? Um, See, this one you're going to enjoy telling. So in the beginning of the... Uh, I didn't even know you were thinking, Maybe we here. should put you on Gigantacast, for God's sake. I... <laughs> I had no idea you were that big of a kaiju fan. Uh, so. Um, so my childhood... You're like kaijuish. Um, <laughs> my parents, when when I was first introduced to movies, uh, I was shown a lot of Godzilla movies. I was shown a lot of like Kurosawa Samurai movies. 
I, I adore Seven Samurai. It's one of my favorite That's films. That's not kaiju. I know. It's just, this is what I grew up on. Okay. And then, yeah. like, also bad 80s, like, Masters of the Universe films. Yeah. Wow. So, that, you can track everything I love in cinema today <laughs> to, like, that past. Okay. But, so, basically, in the beginning of the movie, uh, there's a terrible storm, and it wrecks a ship of some kind that I should remember, but I don't. The crew is found on an island in a radioactive zone where they're going, yeah, they're dead. And they find them, and they're actually perfectly healthy, happy, and alive. Um, when they start talking to them, it ends up that there is an entire native population on this island that they stayed with and made them drink juice that they think somehow cured them from radiation. So hearing this... Like you would, the scientists go to find out why there are a bunch of natives living in an area which should be uninhabitable to all life, and some journalists go along for the ride. There they find this huge jungle uh, filled with crazy vampire plants and natives and tiny little women who are three inches tall who are twins. Um, And... The movie's mustache-twirling, corporate, elitist villain, which I love these kaiju movies because they are so left-wing in comparison to what we expect. Like, they're all staunchly environmentalist, anti-capitalist films. Yeah. But he butchers a bunch of natives needlessly. Yeah, kind of murders the shit out of them. Like, not even self-defense. Like, oh my god, they're around us and making a noise. Mow them down. Yeah. But kidnaps the women and kills a bunch of natives. Does the King Kong thing. Except King Kong as thing. opposed to huge monster, tiny little girls. And begins to put on a show, because apparently that's what you do, um, where he's they sing songs and fly around in a little cradle. Uh, this understandably pisses off Mothra, who is the god of the island. Who's not even born yet. Yeah. Like, truly, yeah, doesn't show up in which this is the problem. Doesn't show up until, like, 35, 40 minutes into this movie. Yeah. Um, Hatches as a uh, caterpillar and basically goes... Motherfuckers, you took my babies. I'm going to come get you. Yeah. And proceeds to wreck everything in her dist- in her path on the way to save the little ladies, which that's the setup. Um, the journalist characters are our main characters, and they're trying to find a way to free the tiny ladies from the industrial tycoon. Yeah, they're totally on the side of tiny, yeah. tiny ladies. They're, so. And Mothra, the caterpillar, eventually turns into a cocoon and hatches as a moth, which I want to call this out. Little kids may be a little bit traumatized by some of the action because just like what happened with Rebirth of Mothra, there's a scene where the military kind of fucks up the cocoon slash baby Mothra and my son almost lost it. I got to learn that my son's trigger is watching the caterpillars get hurt in this movie. Oh, damn. Can't handle it. Um, but then Mothra shows up, the moth that we know, yeah. and just wrecks shit everywhere. Yeah. Which is the only time we've really seen Mothra as a bad guy. Yeah, but they're Kinda. not. Because not. the movie always establishes from the viewpoint of the people on her side. Like, no, she's just coming. To, yeah. Like, we told you. We told the evil corporate guy, don't take the girls from. Because, like, early on, like, no, 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 you don't get to take any. He goes back and takes the good little girls. It's like, no, this can't work out well. So the movie's always on the side of 
like the little girls at least, yeah. like who uh, like even establish a relationship with the reporters who are like, yes, you're actually our friends, and they're like, can you stop Mata from destroying Tokyo? No. They're like, nope, <laughs> out of our control. And, and the villain is very trigger happy in this movie. I don't think there's a scene he's in that he doesn't pull a gun on somebody. And like once once the caterpillar starts wreaking havoc, this movie becomes a lot more interesting. Yeah, agreed. And the last third is. There's sequences where they they literally just have their model town set up, and they're clearly just pumping hurricane force winds through <laughs> there because there's these little the model cars are just bouncing off walls everywhere, and it, they it is, look ridiculous. They do, but it, I'm sorry, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that uh, Matt Frank gets mad at. I'm just like that looks stupid. Yeah, you know, so look, I get it. It's when we look back, I know, that. I know, I'm it's the guy who forgives disbelief. other stuff, but it's just like it really. Does look like somebody set up a huge fan on the side of like the cheapest possible. I mean, like they, they look terrible. Yeah. The cars are like clearly just little plastic pieces of shit. It's like, oh, come on. Which I mean, you're right. This movie has some of the more obvious effects. It's yeah. the one that's it's obviously the, cheaper it, it than the Godzilla the most from time. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure it's also directed by Inoshira Honda, who did the original Godzilla. Um, so like there's pedigree there. Yes, this, it is. This yeah. along with Rodan were two of the kind of solo giant monster Godzilla characters that exist. I know so you said it, that you're a bigger Rodan guy. I, I Rodan is a better movie. Um by far. But like if you're a kaiju fanatic, this is well worth owning. The movie looks and sounds great for what it is. It's a nice fix up. And for sure. I think that if you haven't really seen these and you have a tolerance for the cheesiness that exists with this kind of a movie at this era, um, it's good for older kids or for people to try it out. I, I would still lean towards watch the Godzillas or Rodans first. Dude, like, watch Gamera, man. The, the, the cheesy effects are so much worse in those than here. Right. So. Once you set that baseline, you get a lot more tolerable for this stuff. I mean, this is kind of one of those, like, it's essential if you're determined to be a kaiju person. Yeah. Like, you, you want to see it, and this is a really beautiful-looking steelbook version. There's the English and the Japanese version, of which there's not a huge amount of difference between, to Which be is fair. relatively unique at this time. Yeah. But the English version has an audio commentary by Steve, uh, I, I think it's Rifle, and Ed uh, got, oh my god, forget it, uh, guy named Ed, who wrote a Shiro Honda biography uh, called A Life in Film. So they're the ones offering all their opinions, which seem like the guys to do it. Other than that, it's just a teaser and a trailer and an image gallery. I think you hit the nail on the head. This is for a kaiju fanatic or completist. Like, no matter how you cut it, there's better Mothra movies. There's better movies to get introduced to the genre on. Even me, who is unquestionably a kaiju fanatic, this is the one that I revisit the least. So our next up film is very... It's not a film. It's a series of internet shorts that have been collected together, basically. It's called Divorce Dad. Sit back. I'm going to hear what you think of this. Uh, <laughs> man, I have very mixed feelings about Divorce Dad. This is uh, Kino Lober, which surprises the fuck out of me, because this does not feel like a Kino Lober release, who tend to do, like... Like, okay re-releases, but of, like, somewhat obscure movies 
from all across history. They don't tend to do like, here's this like collective of comedians in this case, Astron six, uh, like doing this fake public access show. It's very Tim and Eric's for sure. Very Tim and Eric. I think people, anybody who loves Tim and Eric's is going to adore divorced dad. I've never been a Tim and Eric guy. I, I hate Tim and Eric. Yeah, I'm not. But I will say that this occasionally m- made me go, okay, I like this much better than that. Because event- occasionally, this gets super fucking Twin Peaksy. God damn it. So, <laughs> so uh, I despise every second of this. Aside from one minute total across all five episodes. Oh, I bet you I know what you're talking about. And it is the two Twin Peaksy moments where it it breaks the shitty public access 80s formula and goes HD as he drops into this weird, messed up, Lynchian horror world. And every time that... Both times that happened. And it only happens twice. Yeah. I go... Oh, this is actually really good. I want to see more where this goes. And then and it, just it just goes back. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, fuck this, man. I hated this. There's no so sense much. of, con- <laughs> there's no sense of like building towards anything. This is much like Tim and Eric's a loose set of ideas that's there trying to be comedic, but it's much more interesting when it's not being and, comedic. And honestly, are you sure? Like, did you actually catch this online? Because no, I YouTubed it. There's one episode online. I spent like ten minutes researching this. I can find. I granted, I'm sure someone's gonna like throw a link in my face five seconds after this posts. But I legitimately tried to find where this is a thing, and I can't find that anywhere, as far as I can tell. And this is the 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 story I I want to go with in my head is that Kino Lorber paid to put this like they made this. No, they did and not. It's all fake. No, they did and not. I mean, it's it, fake. Like, it's like, fake I, I, for like, sure. In my head, even the write up of the backstory of this becoming popular on YouTube is part of. The the joke. <laughs> so, all right. It's like a film completely like a series of like 10 to 15 minute like episodes, which this whole thing is like less than 50 minutes it, long. It's, it's 45 minutes. Yeah. About. Uh, where it's like super low budget public access episodes with a guy and his sidekick who obviously don't really get along. And weird and sometimes really weird fucking shit that happens to them in the length of this that goes into completely surreal, very experimental phases. Now, the only reason I had any interest in this at all is that the Astron 6 guys that are wildly obsessed with the 1980s did a movie I genuinely enjoyed called The Void, which was their first experiment with doing a non-comedy-based horror thing. Which I've heard... I've never seen The Void, but I've. It's always seemed up my alley. And even that, I'm mixed on. I mean, they also did Manborg in 2011, which I genuinely kind of enjoyed, which was a total 80s throwback. They did Father's Day, was slasher film thing. They did The Editor, which is a parody of Giallo, which I I've, remember kind of enjoying. I've heard the Editor, if if it's what I'm thinking of, that was supposed to be legitimately good. I. Kind of enjoyed it. I was like, I see what you're getting after here, and I appreciate the fact that no one else is doing a satire of Giallo in our modern day, but here we are. 
And this one, I'm kind of like, if there had been more than 45 minutes of this, I never would have lasted. There was a point early on, I was like, I'm not even sure I can watch this fucking thing. Oh. But I, I'm kind of glad I did for that one super Twin Peaksy weird as <laughs> shit moment where I was like, one minute of- <laughs> this goes like, uh, I was like, Wow, that's really fucking cool where they just went. <laughs> this is so odd. And once again, I promise you, if you're a Tim and Eric's fan and you like horror movies, you're probably going to dig this like nobody's business. It's just not my Good thing. for them. Yeah, good <laughs> good for you. It just wasn't. I, I, I'm for sorry, me. Tim and Eric fans. I, I don't think less of you. It's just not my thing. It isn't my thing either. I like okay, that's fine. Obviously, those guys have been uh, moved on to big success. You know, working with tons of other people. Thank God, no longer making Tim and Eric's. There you go. Yeah, I just whenever they have a kitty, it's okay. Yeah, I've seen a few things with cats. I thought was I. I don't know anything they've done. I'm I'm okay. (laughs) Uh, There are a few bonus features in this Kino Lober thing. There's a like a a, a alternate footage. There's a short film called Chow Boys, which honestly, that's the one thing I couldn't get through. I was like, no, no." I didn't try. Sorry, sorry. I'll stop being negative now. (laughs) No, it's fine. And then commentaries, but. I, I bit, this is one of those I couldn't wait to hear what you had to say about it because I was like, I know this was not directed at me, but I know people that will watch this and think it's the greatest secret discovery of all uh, time. Yeah, no, this this just hurt. Like, I, I think I laughed twice, and I loved that that sixty seconds, but everything else was a wash for me. All right, we're going to go on to the next thing, which I don't think you've seen, which is Gotham Season 5. No, I uh, I enjoy Gotham. I'm, like, halfway through Season 2. You've told me uh, before yeah. that you were, like, I like listening to you guys talk about Gotham because you, like, kind of get how stupidly awesome it is. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 I think it's a legitimately good show. I, I still can't get past that idea every time I try to watch it that's nagging at the back of my head, which is... They should have just done Gotham Central. Yeah, and even now, agreed. I We're can't all there. Get past it. But like, imagine how great that would yeah. have been if they had so decided to take it super seriously like, and this, adapt this is the a Ed really Great show. It could have been phenomenal. I, mean, I, I like Gotham a lot. Okay, I would never go so show. far as to say it was really great. <laughs> I, it's one of those shows I kind of admire for doing something really different with the Gotham mythos. I mean, I, I'm going to redirect you guys right back to our review that we did for the final episode of season five, which is available on one of us.net. If you put in the search engine Gotham, it'll pop right up. I was on that. We talk about the show this season as a whole. I have very mixed feelings about this season. It's a show that I was genuinely enjoying every season until this season where I went, wow, suddenly the lack of budget and it was a shortened season. It was clear their budget was cut into like a third of what it was. You can watch them like cutting corners at every single scene. Like, ugh. And then ends with a very, very dissatisfying, like, thud. Wet thud. (laughs) Thank you. I may not finish it now, but what I can say about Gotham Season 5 is that I have separately had three separate people watching Gotham right now, and I have used their love of Gotham to turn them on to Gotham Central. (laughs) I mean, Gotham Central is amazing. Good it has almost that. nothing in common with the show Gotham. Yeah. I mean, it's Edward Baker and Sean Phillips. Once again. I think it was Sean Phillips, right? It was. Yeah. I mean, like, who did the best crime comics of the past 
Shit, I can't think of anybody. Ever. I'm going to go say 30 years because yeah. I can't think of anybody else who's made comics as good as them that were crime comics. <laughs> and them taking on the pre-Batman Gotham, which did not, for the record, involve origin stories for every it Batman not pre-Batman com. It was not pre-Batman. Oh, was it not? I thought no. it was. Uh, Bat- and again, sorry, I know this is It's about been a Gotham, little while since I've but No, uh, Gotham Central was the boots-on-the-ground police who had to deal with Batman. So, like, when they kick down a door of an apartment, Mr. Freeze is there, and they have to deal with the paperwork that happens when Batman just dumps a couple of guys on their doorstep. Well, you really make this sound like not worth reading. it is amazing. (laughs) Like, they have a great art This incredible scene where he's ticking boxes on a sheet, and he's like, yes, Batman. They have a great arc where they deal with, like, a, a... a psychopathic sniper randomly killing people, and it's the Joker. Um, there's a bit where uh, a, a now popular or now famous character who I think is Ghost Rider um, deals. No, that's Marvel. Okay, then shit. But she's a, a cop who is famously one of the few lesbian characters. Yeah, yeah, I'm blanking on her but, name. But, but yeah. she deals with Two Face, who he had a relationship with her before he became Two Face, and now he has this crazy obsession with her and kidnaps her in this single white female way. Like it's legitimately maybe one of my top 10 God, uh, Batman comics, and even though Batman's in maybe 15 frames in the entire yeah, series. It's not about Batman. It's about the, the people's regular lives. And by the way, that character in particular, total badass. Yeah. She's yeah. amazing. Um, so that's not Gotham. No, sorry. that's not what we got, <laughs> which is a prequel to Batman with watching him grow and like how all the little bits that made him into that. And I, it's, it did not start the way I wanted it to, where I was like, I was hoping you guys were going to take this seriously. Instead, they made a sort of Tim Burton prequel of Batman where it was like, which even then it, it was tertiarily about Batman. Right. Like, it's more about the birth of his villains, which are by far more interesting than Batman here. And all these characters have come to a head in this final season, which made the very unfortunate decision of making Bane a character in it, as well as, uh, God, not, uh, what's, uh, the daughter of Ra's al Ghul, but the other Talia al Ghul? The other one. I don't know the other There's one. another one who's evil, and Talia ends up being kind of like the good one. Oh. And then the other one, well, she's good-ish, yeah. you know. Uh, and the other one that. is straight up evil, and she's the one who's in this. You're like, okay. And it's supposed to be based on the comic book uh, series No Man's Land, where Gotham is totally cut off from the rest of the world and is under on military control. And that's fine, And I like the way they were building – I can't believe I'm saying this, but I really like what they were doing with the guy who's playing the Joker here. They did a nice sort of twist-a-roo in the last season with, like, who actually the Joker is. And I like that actor. I like the way they were building it. And then this season falls flat on so many levels. Anyway, listen to that review. You can hear me go off about it at length. If you do want to get this Blu-ray, there is, in fact, one really, truly interesting thing that's involved here with that's in the bonus features. I mean, there's a, a deleted scenes here uh, from, it, from it that's about seven minutes long, uh, and then a few featurettes. And the featurette that is worth watching here is Villains, Modes of Persuasion, which is 38 minutes long, and it's not just about Gotham. 
It's one of those essential DC featurettes where it's all the creators, all these writers talking about the history of villains in DC comics and analyzing them from a psychological point of view and not just people in Gotham. Like I said, they're looking at people who've been on, well, they're, the footage is all people who are like on the arrow and Supergirl and the flash and all those shows and taking a look at them one by one and saying, how did we, and not in the, they're not discussing them in the context of who they are in the comics so much as how do we take those characters in the comics and make them an interesting character in a vis- visual form. And it's a deeply interesting feature out about how to write villains in a modern comic book television era that makes this set kind of worth owning for that feature alone. Okay. Yeah. Just saying. That sounds cool. It is cool. I, I was really surprised how well, good it was. Especially given, with Batman, as much as he is kind of one of the most popular superheroes out there, it's always weird because it's kind of about a, a rich white guy beating up people with psychological problems. Yeah. And, and so who himself it, has psychological it, problems. It, I, it's I, a challenge to make those characters interesting clearly have those issues, but also have no qualms about us watching them getting their asses kicked. True. Well, our final film to discuss today is my pick of the week for this week. And this is partially because of such a good fucking presentation. And I realize some people are going to, their hair will catch on fire when I say weird science. John Hughes is like criminally under discussed. I will say film weird science from a period that like from a, a a period of great wealth for John Hughes, which had 16 candles and the breakfast club and Ferris Bueller's day off as unassailable classics. Like had one of these like this and, uh, uh, God, what's the other one? Um, well, there's pretty, pretty in pink. pink was a big one, but I've seen the one that was kind the of breakfast his, club. No, 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 no. I said the breakfast club, the one that was with the female drummer. I have no idea. Fuck. But also a really good film that was actually often been John Hughes himself discussed as his apology for what he got wrong in Pretty in Pink with Eric Stoltz basically playing a male version of, 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 uh, uh, um, so someone red hair. Oh, Molly Ringwald. There you go. Uh, But that's not weird science, which definitely in John Hughes's catalog stands alone as an, Oddball entry. I had a really weird time watching this movie. Okay, because was it your au pair? Was she constantly no, no, no. like, "What's no, going it, on?" It was not a no pair. Uh, I, I watched this. Uh, I think right before she arrived. Yeah, and no, it's so I watched this movie a lot when I was young. Uh, this was a quintessential movie of my childhood. Uh, watched it on VHS. Got it on DVD the first time it came out. But it's also been about a decade since I've seen this movie, and so. In that time, you know, I've I've become an adult, basically. I've had kids. I've gotten married. I am a drastically different person today than I am now. Uh, I, historically, had no concept of any of the problematic issues in this movie. And so it was really weird watching this <laughs> super... Super problematic, super somehow thin empowering, uh, surrealistic dream logic sci-fi comedy. Yeah. And, like, you hit the nail on the head. It's Hughes' weirdest movie, and it's his least hardest movie. Hardest to categorize. And, like, 
even when you're talking plot, like, do you mind? No. Like, like basically, by all means, it's two schlubby, and I put this in quotes, nice guys, um, losers in high school who just want women and want the concept of a woman in some way. Yeah. Uh, Anthony um, Michael Hall, who is a John Hughes regular yes. and, and the only in this one movie, Ellen Michael Smith, who is decidedly a terrible actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I, I prefer him in this movie for some reason. Well, you're supposed to. It's his voice. No, you're supposed to. He's supposed to be the nice one of the two. But, um, but he clearly is a terrible no. actor. So in the beginning of the movie, they're lonely and sad and lonely. And also, by the way, Robert Downey Jr. is in this. Yes. Um, so they decide they are going to make a woman. Now, the anybody who has a problem with the plot of this movie is going to have a problem with the beginning because they just go, we are going to do this thing and then do. Yeah. And like they hack into the Pentagon, they wear bras on their heads and magically they do indeed create a woman out of thin air. And let's was, just move past that. Who is the lovely and talented at the time who surprisingly never really had much of a career after this, Kelly LeBron. Yeah. And so she is, Kind of puck. She's this like mischievous trickster god who can do anything. And I, I feel like she's Roger Rabbit who can do anything as long as it's funny. And she takes these two losers under their wings who are so beta male that when they create her, they ask all they can think of to do is to take a shower with her and they don't even take off their clothes. Yeah. They are and they are by definition impotent to her power. And the movie is about this trickster god basically trying to shock them into being uh, affirmed quality people who know what they want and are also not terrible. And so she takes them on this weird meandering very funny journey of just surrealistic shit happening. And like, you know, okay, I, I don't even know how to explain the so plot beyond that. There's a ton of 80s sex comedy movies out there. A ton. And almost all of them are terrible, especially in retrospect. Yeah. Like, with no redeeming values. I would argue that Weird Science has a premise that would immediately turn off anyone that was looking to analyze this in any sort of like modern day aspect, but ends up kind of redeeming itself in a way, but it's still dealing with tropes of the period and things that it wasn't willing to go all out on that are troublesome. It's just the fact that it's the, only one of these films that A, was genuinely trying to redeem itself and that viewpoint, past that viewpoint, to have these characters go, you know what, your weird incel viewpoint thing is totally wrong in a very not beat you over the head of, with it way. Well, it's like, yeah, she's it's, kind of like forcing them to understand that they're, they are impotent, that this whole viewpoint and way of looking at the world as women is nothing but sex objects is the deals to you in being incapable of becoming erect, <laughs> you know, which is a weird thing. And it's the only one of all of these sex comedies that's wildly 
absurdistly surreal. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, the, the third act of this movie is a house party. Partway through, uh, a, the biker gang from Mad Max shows up. I yeah. think played by the actual same actors. Even. Some of them. Some of them. Um, Michael Berryman, who uh, plays the... the uh, um, uh, one of the main guys who is known for being in uh, The Hills Have Eyes. Who who has my favorite off-the-cuff remark after the climax of the movie. He turns to them and goes, Hey, uh, please don't tell anyone about this. I really don't want to lose my teaching job. <laughs> the, the guy who is the uh, the main guy, I forget his name right now, uh, was, in, was in The Road Warrior. Okay, yeah. I thought so. Yeah. But, uh, and... Um, Bill Paxton is in this, is the the horribly abusive hunt lo- hunting loving brother Chet, yeah. who gets who gets turned into something delightful. That's all I'm going to say if you yeah. haven't seen the movie. A, a really fun. There's a bonus feature just specifically about the effects work on that. Like yeah, so that's where I'm I'm torn on this because I never noticed the problematic issues. I mean, nobody comes unscathed. They go to a, a an obviously jazz bar that's filled with black people talking jive. Okay, and which admittedly and, is one of the most problematic scenes in the yeah, whole thing. But it's also a deeply funny sequence. It is. And like for, for everything like that then you have the main the the woman who is kind of arguably the main character of the movie turning and going you can't talk to women like that they're yeah. not going to be around you because you're not enjoyable you got to learn how to have a conversation with someone and actually listen to them it's like a weird <laughs> 80s soft sell on don't be a fucking douchebag yeah. objectifying women. But even though it kind of ends up with the sort of like, we don't, we didn't really stick the landing on that point. No. You know, I mean, I'm not going to completely defend this film based on that, but it does a lot to save itself from its basic premise. It's one of those movies that you, you just have to go, this is a component of it. And then look beyond that because the rest of it's so good. It is not Greece. It's not no. where you go back and you're like, oh my God, this is horrible. Everybody is a terrible human being. Like, there's a lot of good in this movie. I, I still enjoyed it. I laughed my way through it. Oh, I do too. It's just, it was shocking to me. <laughs> and this is Arrow who put this out in a gorgeous steel book. And big thanks to my rep from, from Arrow who I was like, hey man, like, I, I don't call me out on this, but I'm a huge fan of this movie. If there's any chance I could get, like, not just a cutout disc in the actual steel book of this, I'd really appreciate it. And I'm so glad he did, actually. I mean, like, like really thankful anyway, because, like I said, Arrow, good guys. But um, this has both a theatrical version and an extended version, which I have never seen before, first off. Like, the extended version of this has... Not a huge amount of sequences, but a few extra sequences that were like, wow, a film I've watched probably 30, 40 times because it was one of those ones I had on beta max growing up. And it was like, okay, you just watch it because there were only so many options. I watched it over and over again. Like, it was so neat to watch these bonus sequences that are, admittedly, you can see why they cut out of the film. But, like, they're there. (laughs) <laughs> if you want to see them. And as well, you can watch the theatrical version. And if you don't want to see that, the extended versions are separately available on the disc, which I love it when they do that. When yeah. they're like, this is the extended version. But if you want to just watch what you have your memories of, here's those scenes taken out of it. You know, it's interesting. I don't often say this. This is one of those rare movies that 
I would really love to see someone take a stab at, I don't want to say a remake, but something like this today. Uh, something so that they could address the problematic behavior of the characters a little more up front. Yeah. And just make a surrealistic, weird as shit, dream logic teen comedy. Dude, I, I think would, it would be so fun. I would think it would be amazing to take to try and come at this film in a way with today's mores. And I, once again, I want to defend this movie as saying it was trying. Yeah. As best well, as you could in the 80s. It's, it's, exactly. Like, for the 80s, this shit is progressive as all hell. Yeah. It's really trying. And like, Hughes was given his best. And a guy whose best known films are from a female or from a equally male and female cast. Yeah. Like, Oh, Some Kind of Wonderful was the other film okay. I was trying to think of, which is female-led, once again. Um, he's trying. For a movie that starts off, if you're going to start watching this, you've never seen it before, you're going to go like, oh, this is like, gross. With the guys, teenage boys objectifying girls and having feel in that incel version of like, we deserve to get laid. What is wrong with this? You know, the best thing I can say to this movie is it's one that I'm going to show my son. Yeah. Uh, and talk later, about it with them. But also, yeah, like, we're going to talk about it as we watch the movie. It's going to be a conversation starter. But there's enough here that I kind of can't wait to show them. So this also comes with the TV cut version, which is kind of funny because of the things they replace the swearing with are really absurdly weird. Hey, yippee ki Mr. Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and there's interviews with the casting director, which uh, Jackie Birch, which was really fun, with her watching her talk about, like, how do you cast some of these side roles in this thing? Like talking about her meeting Robert Downey Jr., who at this point was an unknown. Oh my god, he's so baby faced. Yeah, he's adorable, he's almost unrecognizable. And you can completely see why he became a major star. Yeah, because he's a bad. He's one of the two bad boys who torment the two leads, and you're like, wow, you're. I mean, you're by definition supposed to be the most problematic people in this film, and you are, and yet you're. You can't take your eyes so off cute. your energy. He's just, just so cute. Far, far. <laughs> uh, interview with actor John Kapalos, who plays the the one white guy in the black bar they go to, <laughs> who's wonderful, who you've seen in a billion movies. I I quote this movie all the time, but most of the times I quote are from that bar yeah. sequence. Let me tell you a story about this little eighth grade yes. bitch I was dating. <laughs> <laughs> that voice. Uh, <laughs> There's the interview with the special makeups effect artist Craig Reardon, who did the sequence with uh, Chet, the yeah. brother, uh, uh, turning into a giant goopy thing, with the editor and with the composer Ira Newborn, who's like huge deal in music, who made one of my favorite soundtracks of this era. Like I've listened to Weird Science soundtrack. I mean, I used to have the vinyl. Yeah. Of this fucking, like, soundtrack. Somebody, the, the uh, Oingo Boingo's Weird Science. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is, like, so great. Which I geeked out. I didn't realize that was Oingo Boingo. But there's also an archival documentary, a document, documentary? Doc, documentary Who from 2008 uh, with a bunch of interviews. I mean, like, I've, I've actually seen that one before because I am a dork for this movie. <laughs> TV and radio spots and a still gallery. And, like I said, a gorgeous... Uh, hardback, or, I'm sorry, steelbook that comes with two essays, both 
from female writers about this film. Which, well, you have to. Yeah. Like, like, that's the thing. As much as this movie has so much going for it, you can't, you can't look at it from any other perspective other than to go like, yes, okay, these are women and this is their interpretation of I this mean, movie. I, both of them have that feeling of like, God damn it. I was like 13 when I saw this and I loved the shit out of it. And I've got to find a way to say something good about it. And you watch that evolution in both their pieces of going ultimately to like, Eureka! (laughs) I honestly think that this is not as problematic as we've all thought it was. (laughs) And I agree with that point. I don't think it's as problematic as we all thought it was. I love the fact that this is kind of a 80s version of like telling incel males Fucking chill out, you dickless wonders. <laughs> like, maybe it's about just being a decent human being. Yeah. <laughs> like, neither one of them get to fuck their dream woman. No, they don't. They they end up actually forming a relationship with them on a human level. Sort of. <laughs> There's a point where one of the characters goes, yeah, it's more of like a sister relationship. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, because you cannot deal with someone that out of your league. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was this week's Digital Noise, and I want to thank Aaron for once again being amazing and coming in. I can't believe the stacks of movies I hand you that you're like, yes, I'll take that. And I'm like, Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Someday he's going to just, like, oh, I'm going to hand him a stack, and he's just going to reach up like one of the critters and like, rip my throat out. <laughs> You're going to pay me back by hooking me up with Ultraman discs. <laughs> I'm a, you know what? If that's the deal, if they send me those, I will put them in your hand. Thank you. And Thank say, you. you can take them. Thank you. Because I'm not as big of an Ultra. I like the Ultraman movement, the whole, like, uh, the tea thing that uh, he actually, does. I'll be honest. I have seen very little Ultraman because... It's almost impossible to find in America. So that's why I'm so excited. I'm like, I get to actually watch this now. You know, I would say somewhere that, like, Matt Frank is like, hey, but he's going to get sent that shit. Yeah. So I I don't need to hook him up with that. Just saying. Matt Frank has already pre-ordered the entire set. Anyway, the next... Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, actually, he's the one who... uh, He's how I found out that this was happening. (laughs) Was this Facebook. The next show will be John Golson coming back. He did just did a trip through middle America. He went to a Flintstones village... That, that was about to close. Okay. Like a weird, uh, like one of those, it's a Flintstones theme park that was a pathetic, oh, weird. Oh, literally little, Flintstones. Yeah. You don't mean just like some no. ancient culture. I mean, literally Flintstones. Okay. That he's, I, and I, I was like, when he told me he was going, I was like, oh yeah, I've seen pictures of that. He's like, yeah, they're about to demolish it. So I'm going before it closes. Okay. And they went to the Grand Canyon and he went to a bunch of, he went to Meow Wolf, which fuck you, John Golson. I want to go to Meow Wolf. I think I saw that photo actually. I had some pictures of that. So tune into the next digital noise to me to watch to listen to me telling John Golson fuck you for going to Meow Wolf. I really am going to be disappointed if I play that episode and you don't begin it with fuck you. Oh, I'm starting with that. <laughs> okay. 